Um, if you have your Bible, we are going to be continuing through 1 Samuel chapter 2. In April of 2009, there was a shipping container that was called the Mayarsk, Alabama. It's an American shipping container, and it was on its way back to America full of goods when Somalian pirates tried to board the ship. And the captain did everything he could to prevent that, but despite their best efforts, they got on board. You guys might be familiar with the story. It's, they made a movie after it. It's called Captain Phelps, or Captain Phillips. And um, I got Michael Phelps in there. Captain Phillips was his name. And uh, the Somalian pirates get on board, and the line that came out from that movie that everyone remembers so well was the Somalian pirate gets on board, looks at the captain, and says, look at me, look at me. I am the captain now. I am the captain. And what he's communicating to him is, I'm in charge now. You don't get to say what happens. You don't get to make decisions on where the people are going, where the ship is going. I'm in charge. You're not. I'm the captain now. And what happens with the story is, the, uh, this is the first time an American shipping container had been captured by the Somali pirates. They had a really great fiscal year, ranging in tens of millions of dollars for hostages they had kidnapped and held for ransom. So they, they figured, well, we'll try an American one because they have lots of money. So they did that, and the Navy did not appreciate it. So surrounded the ships, and eventually Captain Phillips, Phillips wanted his crew safe. So he convinced all the pirates to get onto a lifeboat with him. And so they're out in this lifeboat. This is the most amazing thing. They had the lifeboat's out in the middle of nowhere with all these Navy ships around it. The ships have to stay out of range of the Somali pirates' guns because they keep taking shots at them. So no Americans were hurt. And what was wild is there became a time when it became apparent that the captain was in serious danger for his life. There was a, a pirate had a gun to his back. There was very angry conversations. And there was three American snipers who had to time the movement of the pirate's lifeboat with the movement of their boats. There's two moving struck platforms. There's wind. In the, in the movie, there was rain. I don't know if that's true, but there was, there's wind for sure. And uh, there's people. Like, you're moving and stuff. And they had to time their shots, three snipers at once, in order to save Captain Phillips. And they did. It's a true story. It's the craziest thing in, in my mind. They were able to do that. But going through this chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 2, for me, the thing that kept popping up in my head is we have an enemy who desperately wants people to believe he's the captain now. He's in charge. He's got a plan. And the entire time that the Somalian pirate was on the cargo ship and on the lifeboat, he was certain, I've got him. I've got him right where I want him. We've got a way out of this. We can figure this out. But the entire time, the American forces had their own plan going on that was subversive and was greater than the Somalian pirate's plan. In that same way, when we read stories like this, our chapter has got, there's bad stuff happening. There's a bad system. There's people in corruption, high up in leadership. There's things going on that's super wrong. And we have an enemy 
who wants to tell God's people and wants to tell everyone in the world, I'm the captain now. This is how you do life. This is the way that you live. This is the way you conduct business. This is the way that you talk about people. This is the way you handle relationships. And if you don't do things this way, their weapons are, well, I'll take away your job. Uh, you, you'll lose your relationships. You'll, you'll lose your position of power. You'll lose your influence. You'll lose your friends. I'll cancel you. I'll ruin your life. That's the, what the things that the enemy likes to share and likes to say. But our story, the entire time that there's all this darkness and stuff that shouldn't be going on, there's always a, what the Bible has over and over again is there's a, but God, there's the enemy says, I'm the captain now. Yeah, but God, what's God doing? Because behind the scenes, God is working a plan. And it's really interesting. I, I'm a musician and I got my degree in math. So the way my brain works is I really like patterns. If I can establish a pattern, I can understand something. This chapter for me is pretty cool. It's got a pattern. It's an A, B, A, B pattern. So as you read through the poem, you'll see an A, B, A, B. The A is we have a God who can reverse, reverse people's destinies and their circumstances. That's part A. And part B is we have a God who is the overpowering authority of the earth. Our God's actually the captain. And so that will go back and forth in Hannah's poem, which is the opening of the chapter. And the second part of it is it's this ABAB format of there's a bad system, there's corruption, there's evil, things are not the way that God wants it to be, and the enemy is saying, I'm the captain. But all the while, the B part is God has got a plan, and he's raising up someone to set his people free. It's a really cool chapter. So let me give you a little bit of recap. There's two people. It's Hannah and Elkanah are their names, and they, they can't have a kid. So Elkanah gets a second wife so that he can have kids, because having a son was super important. And uh, this second wife, it just berates and provo provokes and belittles Hannah over the fact that she can't have a baby. And so she's, she certainly says things that make her feel like she's less, that she has no value, that there's probably um, a secret sin going on in her life that's causing her to be unable to have a child, just making her feel small, making her feel unimportant. And it's all the same stuff that the enemy tries to do with you and with me. It's all these tactics that the enemy always uses. The enemy loves to use shame, and he loves to use guilt, and he loves to use fear to get God's people, to get humanity as a whole to say, oh, maybe I am worthless. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe, maybe I am going to get left behind. Maybe that's something that you struggle with. Maybe that's something that the enemy has, has been whispering in your ear. And if that's true, there's a, a text I was looking at today. I just want to share with you really quickly, briefly. It's in Ephesians. That if you're someone who struggles with guilt, our God has taken your guilt. And because of the work of Jesus, he's given you innocence. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. You can write it down. I'll read it for you. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have no more guilt. It's been covered by Jesus it's been paid for. The enemy cannot make you feel that anymore. It cannot corner you in that way anymore. Jesus has given you a way out. Nope, Jesus has paid for it. If you feel like it's, if it's shame, if it's shame that you feel like is, is always being pressed on you, comes into your mind, it makes you feel like I'm just not good enough. I, 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 I'll never be enough. Well, Ephesians chapter one, verse five says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
Chapter 212 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. We have a God who takes people who are so engulfed in shame and didn't have access and God has elevated them and brought them in and said, no, you're not foreigners. You're not distant to the promises of God. You're my people. You're my kids. You've been adopted by the king. It's just like my kid, like watch out if you're mean to my kid. I think this is what God's saying. Hey, watch out if you try to shame my kid. That's what God is saying. So when the enemy tries to make you feel that, no, nah, you need to go talk to my dad because he doesn't see me that way. And then lastly, fear. If you feel like probably Hannah did, hey, if I don't have a baby, I'm never going to be loved. I, I, I might be kicked out. Uh, I won't be accepted in certain social circles. It's Ephesians 1.19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Our God has the last say that he's the one of ultimate authority and power. And the enemy can't use guilt, shame, or fear to make God's people feel small. He'll try. He'll try to whisper in your, I'm the captain now. I'm in charge. And you just go, you would respond just like Jesus does in Luke chapter four. Whenever the enemy tries to talk to you, use scripture. You say, no way. No way, man. Talk to my dad about it. Because he says the opposite. So she goes to the temple. Hannah does. She pours her heart out. She, she's praying, and Eli, the priest, comes up, accuses her of being drunk. She says, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm, I'm, I'm vexed. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm depressed. If it, I, I just really, I, I need help. And so Hannah says, I'm not a worthless woman. That's the word that comes up. And remember that, because it's going to come up in our text tonight. I'm not a worthless woman. And he says, whatever, whatever you're praying for, whatever you want, may God give it to you. So she goes home. And she had prayed, okay, God, if you can give me a son, I'll, I'll give him back to you. I'll, I'll put him into your service. You can have him. And God blesses her with a son. She brings the son to the temple. And where we pick up in our story is the prayer that she prays after bringing her son back and is going to give him into the care of Eli. So if you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we'll read verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. When you've seen God move, you got to praise him. We're worshiping people. We were all created to worship. You know this. You've seen it in practice in your life because every time you found a good show on Netflix, every person you run into knows about it. You've told them about it. Hey, you've got to watch this thing. It's crazy. It actually ends well, which is a big one for Netflix. You know, or anytime you have new music or anytime there's a new relationship or a new job, you, you have to tell something. If someone is explosive out of you, it's how God created us, that we're worshiping people. When we see God move, we have to praise. We have to tell people. And notice that it says, my mouth derides my enemies. 
You know what really makes the enemy feel small and weak? When God's people want to praise God. When God's people are worshiping people. And Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've been trying to think all week, okay, if I had a tape recorder around my, around my neck, is my mouth one that derides the enemy? Or is my mouth more in line with what the enemy wants? Like if I were to have a tape recorder around my mouth, around my neck, and I were to play back at the end of this week, would I be someone who I'm like, this person exalts in the Lord. This person praises the Lord. This person, by the words he's saying, puts the enemy down and makes the enemy small. Or do I act like the enemy's the captain now? When I speak, which captain do I exalt? So verse, this is part A. So part A is um, we have a God who can reverse destinies and circumstances. And part B is he's the overpowering authority of the world. It's going to go back and forth. So verse two is where you see part B. There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. There's no one who compare to our God. There's no rock like him. I love that the Bible uses the imagery of God as a rock. And Jesus will talk about there are two groups of people. There, everyone builds their life on something. And you either build your life on the rock, which stands firm, that's immovable, that's unshakable, that nothing can compare to. Or you build your life on reputation or status or a relationship or what others think of you. This, it's the, the foundation of who you are as a person. It's either going to be based on God and what God thinks and what God says or what people think or what you think or what, what you want to be right, what's important to you. And Jesus says both of those houses can look beautiful. Both of them can look tall. Both of them can be desirable. But ultimately, when tribulation comes, when there's distress, when there's hardship, one will stand and one will fall. And the one that stands is the one who's built on the rock. We have a God that's incomparable, the overarching authority of the whole world. And so part B, he's the God who, or part A, the God who can reverse destinies. Verses three through five. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Who are the kind of people that God likes to use? Is it the mighty? Is it the strong? Is it those who are in power? They have lots of education. They've, they're fit for service. What I love about our God is the minimum requirement to be used by him tends to be being what seems to be the wrong person, the person that, that shouldn't be used, that can't be used, that it's the person who just in humility seeks after God. Man likes to look on the outward appearance, but we have a God who looks at the heart. I think that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek because they're going to inherit the earth. You see this happen with Gideon where you have Gideon by the Lord raises up an army to fight against the Midianites. And already there's a huge issue with how many Israelites there are and how many Midianites there are. And God says, you know what? I don't like the numbers. And Gideon is like, yes, Lord, I don't like them either. Let's double, let's triple. And God says, tell anyone who's afraid they can go home. 
Gideon's like, that's, no, 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 that's the opposite of what I was thinking. And so Gideon tells him and people leave. And Gideon's like, well, okay, maybe we can make this work. And God goes, I don't like the numbers. And Gideon's like, yes, thank you. God says, there's too many. Oh my gosh. So God has this thing where they go down to the river and if they drink a certain way, those are the ones that can go to battle. And it ends up being 300 men. And the reason God did that is because God wanted the victory to be his. That people would look at what happened there and say, they must serve a powerful God, a powerful God of authority, God who can make things happen, a God who's in control. That's the kind of God I want to follow. He doesn't want it to be a situation where people can go, oh yeah, no, I had it. I had it covered. Gideon wouldn't be able to say that. Gideon would be like, yeah, God had it covered. It's kind of like David and Goliath. You have a kid standing in front of a giant. He couldn't claim, well, it was my background as a warrior. Nope, it was I have a God who is on my side. God wants people who will say, hey, here's my five loaves. Here's my two fish. I don't know if you can do anything with that, but if you will, I'll give it to you. Take, take all that I have. Take all of that, that is in me. God, if you can use it, I want to see you do something with it. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. We have a God who has power over life and death. He's the only one who has power over life and over death. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. The depressing circumstances that could be in your life, the situation that you're in. Notice how there's all these back and forth, the poor, rich, the hungry, full, the mighty's bows are broke. Like there's this, this contrast that is being shown here in this poem, telling you and me and any reader that someone's circumstances that they're born into through God's power doesn't have to be the way that you live your life. That we have a God who can take people from the ash heap, which would have been the pile of rubbish outside the city. That's the, the, the least place you want your kids to go play, the least desirable place, the least, this is, you want nothing to do with that. Our God takes people from that scenario, raises them up to sit in honor with princes and leaders and rulers. That we have a God who's able to completely turn upside down someone's situation, someone's life. We don't have to be stuck in the generational garbage that our parents or our grandparents left us in. That we don't have to continue a cycle that's been bad and unhealthy and unfruitful. That just because you experienced an abusive father doesn't mean that you have to be an abusive father. That just because you experienced a terrible relationship between your parents doesn't mean that you have to continue that terrible relationship for your kids to experience. Just because something happened to you does not mean that you have to continue to perpetuate that cycle because our God has given us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And through God's spirit, through talking to God, through saying, God, help me in this, we have a God who's able to pull people out from the darkest, worst circumstances and elevate them up. People who just turn to him and say, okay, God, I'm in. Verse 10, <clears throat> the adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. 
Against them, he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. His king, his anointed. Ever since the Abrahamic covenant, there's been looking forward to a king person. And so kings are coming, but there's a better king coming. We're going to get Saul. We're going to get David. But this is looking towards someone even greater. In Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 55, you have Mary and she writes a poem. And the poem that she writes uses a lot of imagery and a lot of symbolism and a lot of ideas that's written right here, which tells you and me that the entire, the, the, the first generation of Christians would read this about his anointed. His anointed looks like, a, it kind of looks like and sounds like Messiah. It's where you get that word. They would read this poem and they'd say, this is all about Jesus. This song, as we read it, it's supposed to encourage people from humble grounds from, from lowly positions that through God's power and spirit, they can become important leaders in their community, that they can become agents of change to push back darkness and see God's kingdom come even today. Because you know what? There are really bad systems. There are really bad people in positions of leadership. And God has raised you and me up in this community of Grants Pass to push back against that darkness, that he can flip the script. We have a God who's able to do that, and he's the overpowering authority of the entire world, and he's on our side. So, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I'm in. I'll give you my five loaves and my two fish. So that's the first part is Hannah's poem. The second part moves from Eli's sons and Samuel. So it's that A-B format, I think. So before it was the, you have God can reverse the circumstances and destinies of people going back and forth between he is the overpowering authority of the earth. And then the second part is there's a bad system. There's corruption. There's people in charge saying, I'm the captain. I'm in control. This is what we're doing. And you have God working a plan, raising up someone to set his people free. And so Samuel's story, it's, it's mixed up in all this darkness in this chapter. Things are really not good. And as we read it, I just want you to notice and pay attention to how much control Samuel's mom and dad really have over him. It's not a whole lot. They've left him. And really, that's what we do with our kids too. Where Samuel was brought to church, a place where he should be safe, a place where he should be able to grow, a place where he should be able to learn and entrusted him into their care saying, okay, I'll see you after. I'll see you in a little bit. I'm excited to hear about all you've learned and all you've grown. But there's bad people in charge. There's bad system. There's an enemy at work. Well, with our kids, there's systems that we entrust our kids to where the enemy has control. The enemy has dominion. And, and it could be, just for instance, the school system. You put your kids into school, a place they should be safe, have the ability to grow, have the ability to learn, and there's an enemy who says, I'm the captain here. I get to decide what goes into curriculum, what gets taught, what gets taught about identity, what gets taught about what makes a person important or safe or happy or what brings a flourishing life, how people came to exist, all of that sort of stuff. There's an enemy in charge in those places. A place where you should be able to learn and to grow is a place that's been 
fueled and corrupted by power and money. And in the case of Samuel's situation, even sexual sin. And you know what? Even if you homeschool your kids, there's going to come a time when they, they'll probably go to college. If you homeschool your kids, probably not. Just kidding. I was homeschooled. <laughs> but there's a time when they'll go to college. There's a time when they're going to enter the workforce or get a relationship with a friend or or someone of the opposite sex, and they're going to be shared with all the things the world has to offer. And if your kids aren't prepared for it, if you haven't raised your kids with intentionality, they're not going to have the tools. You see, like in Genesis, you have this guy named Joseph, where Joseph is raised in what should be a godly family. There's obviously problems. And suddenly, shockingly, He's taking, taken away from his family and thrust into a really secular system where he's faced with the allures of power and of, of influence and sex and all the things that the world has to offer. But somehow he's able to say to all the temptation, you know, I can't sin against my God in that way. He's got no church. He's got no Christian community. He's got no godly influence in his life. But somehow he's able to say, no, I wouldn't do that. No, I, I can't do that against my God. Even after being thrown in prison, spending 16 years in slavery and in prison, finally standing before the most important person in the world at the time, and he still gives all glory to God. And then for me, the most shocking part, when his brothers come up and he's in a position of power and can finally get revenge, he doesn't. And he says, hey, what you meant for evil, which was evil, God used for good for the saving of many lives. Craziness. Man, how do you raise kids like that? How do you do that? How do we equip our kids to become kids that when they are taken out of their support system, removed from community, they be people who are like that? Proverbs 22.6 says, if you train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That our role as parents is to intentionally raise up kids to know Jesus. And so that just means daily stacking up kindling in your kid's heart of this is what is right. This is what is true. That means practicing what you preach. That means not having rules for me, but not for thee or, or the other way around rules for thee and not for me. It's raising your kids up to show, no, this is serious. This is important. This is how we live our lives. So that way, when they're faced with the things of this world, they say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. We need to be people who talk with our kids about what the Lord has done. Maybe you have kids who have already moved out of your house. You go, well, what do I do now? Well, just like with Samuel's mom and dad, when you annually visit them, which will be coming up soon for Thanksgiving, Tell them what the, what the Lord has done in your life. Ask them, what's, what's God doing in your life? Well, I don't know, God. Well, he, he's doing something. He's real. He wants you. Engage them in good conversation. And the biggest tool you have that you can do at any point is you can pray for your kids. Because we have a living God who's the overpowering authority of the entire earth. And our prayer does something. Our God desires our prayers. There's two great tools you can use. So verse 12 this section starts with, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. What a way to go down in history. In the Bible for all future generations to look at and reminisce on. Worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. 
I skipped verse 11. Let me read that real quick. Then Elk and I went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli the priest. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. Which is interesting, right? Because you have the family who raised Samuel for a little bit and trust him into this system that is bad, yet Samuel is raised up and he does well. Eli, though, his sons are worthless. They're terrible people. They're, they're the bad guys in the story. Their dad always had them in church. They knew all the Bible trivia. They had the books of the Bible memorized in order. They know the Bible better than you do. And they're worthless men. They're in a spot that they should not be. Honestly, when I was reading this and thinking through it, it reminded me a whole lot of me. I was the Awanas kid. I was raised in church. It was super important to my mom. We were always at church, going to Christian school, super involved. My mom put me in multiple Christian summer camps every single summer, which if you were ever put in multiple summer camps in one year, the camp's not for you. It's for your mom. And now that I have a six-year-old, I'm like, I get that now. How many summer camps are in Southern Oregon? Like, let's figure this out. I, I knew all, I still have them memorized by song, all the books of the Bible. I could tell you, I had Bible verses memorized. I could tell you all the facts and all the trivia. I knew all about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. Just like you can know all about George Washington, events, places, things he did, things he may or may not have said, but you don't know George Washington. You probably don't have a conversation with him. You probably don't talk to him and want a relationship with him because that would be crazy. And so growing up, that was me. You know, I, I, I was in church all the time, was participated in worship services. We read, we, we prayed. Okay. I went to Christian school, knew all the facts, could recite the stuff, but I didn't know God. So what really changed for me? Because when I was going to church, for me, you know, you go to church and you hear people share their testimonies like I was a meth addict and then I was in this, this airplane that was falling from the sky and a, an angel pulled me out of it and saved me. And I'd listen, I'd go, wow, maybe I should start doing drugs. I want to know God like that. You, there was a season where the church would only share testimonies like that, not Edgewater, the church as a whole. We were in San Diego at the time and I was like, wow, maybe that's what you have to do to have a good spiritual experience. But that's not what happened for me. What happened for me, what changed for me is every single day, my dad, who's an electrician, not a pastor, would come home from work. We would sit at the dinner table. We would pray. And my mom and dad would talk about work, about life, about Jesus, about God. And then every night they would pray every single day. And then every Wednesday, we didn't do Wednesday, every Sunday they would bring me kicking and screaming to church because I didn't really like church, but I went and I memorized all the stuff and they would make me go, make me go. And they would always tell me one day you're going to be old enough to make a decision for yourself. But while you live in my house, we go to church. This is what we do. And they would bring me to church, bring me to church. And then when I was 16, I did have the opportunity to not go to church. I didn't go, chose not to. But then some of my buddies I was with, they said, Hey, Hey, let's go check out this church. They got really great music and choosing to go of my own volition. It was in that moment, in that night, that God ignited what my parents had been stacking up around my heart faithfully for 16 years and changed my life. All of a sudden, God's real. All of a sudden, 
I can know him, not just know about him. That's what really changed for me. I think for so often, that's the best we can do for our kids. It's not a magic bullet. It's not a special thing you need to do. It's I'm going to faithfully live out what I preach to my kids. Okay, we're going to pray. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to make, if this is so important as I really think it is, then I'm going to act like it's that important. And I'm going to bring it up with my kids. I'm going to have real conversations with my kids. We're going to talk about the stuff that they, they learn at school and say, do you really think that's true? How do you think that works out? And wrestle through stuff. Intentionally stack kindling around the heart of your kids, knowing that we have a God who wants to be known and wants to know. And that if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. Make your kids curious about the Lord that they would seek after him. And God's spirit, you pray, would ignite in their hearts that they would become Jesus followers that surpass you. That they would know Jesus to a greater degree that you do. That's the prayer that we as parents need to be praying for our kids. It's a serious burden because here are two kids that you should not have to worry about. These are the pastor's kids. These are the kids who know the Bible more than you. These are the kids who are... Dude, they got a job at the church. Like these are supposed to be really, really good kids, but they don't know God because Eli didn't raise his kids well. He brought them to church. They were always in class. They were always in Sunday school, but their faith was vicariously lived out. Our God does not have grandchildren. Do you know that? Jesus only has children, but you can't have your parents' faith be good enough to be your faith you have to, to raise your kids to become children of God. You have to raise your kids to know God. It's interesting because Eli thought Hannah was worthless before when, with the maybe being drunk, what she was doing. But the people who are truly worthless in God's economy, those who are highly esteemed but don't know the Lord. And so here's what happens to them. It's verses 13 through 17. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of Yahweh. For the men treated the offering of Yahweh with contempt. So God laid out how God's worshipers were supposed to worship him. And you can see it in Leviticus. You can see it in Deuteronomy. But there was, it was very clear. God's people, when they'd come, they'd worship. There was a portion allocated to the priests. This is what they eat. Because they couldn't go and farm for food. They had a really big responsibility that was supposed to be one they honored at the temple. And so what would happen is the, the people would come and they would sacrifice the Lord's portion. They would boil the meat, they'd burn the fat, but these priests would say, no, I want that. I'm going to take, I want to take what, what I want. And they come, they, they stuck a fork 
in it. They'd take it away. They would come and, and say, give us the meat right now. And they would say, well, at least let us burn the fat off it. And say, if you don't, I'm going to beat you up. The worshipers of the temple were being taught, hey, you know what? It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what God wants as long as the priest gets what he wants. And it's really interesting to me. Notice how the worshipers, they push back. The church members are more righteous than the priests. Do you see that? The church members are like, hey, hey uh, how about we do this? And then you can do whatever you want. Let, let's do the part I know I'm supposed to do, and then we can do your thing. And these priests say, no, you are going to do what I want. I'm the captain now, or I'm going to take it by force. I'm going to punish you for it. Priestly abuse in this area was giving the church a really, really bad name. And it still, unfortunately, can happen today. There are three things that belong to God that the people working in God's service are not supposed to touch. It's God's glory, it's God's girls, and it's God's gold. And today, those things, there's still people who get in positions of power and authority in the church who fail in those areas. And because of that, people look at the church and say, ah, see, that's why I can't be a part of that. I'm throwing the talent. I'm out. I'm done with the whole church thing. It's really sad. The system here at the temple is broken, but, but God, but here's what happens with Samuel right in the middle. There's this darkness. Things are wrong. Things are bad. There's verse 18. Samuel was ministering before Yahweh, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may Yahweh give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would indeed return to their home. Indeed, Yahweh visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of Yahweh. Even though what's going on in this system is evil, is wicked, is wrong, Samuel doesn't throw in the towel. He doesn't take his ball and go home. He doesn't quit the church. He says, regardless of what others are doing, I'm going to continue to do what is right. And if you really believe that God is judge, that God is all powerful, that he sees and he knows and he discerns what is what is in the intentions of man's heart, it leaves you really free to just pursue what God has called you to do and not be worried about what other people are doing. Yeah, sin needs to be called out. Absolutely. These priests needed to be called out. They were in a position of serving the Lord and were doing the wrong thing. Totally. But because Samuel knew God is judge, God's bigger than me. God's in control. I'm going to trust him in this. And he was able to focus on continuing to grow in the Lord and to grow and develop into the person that God needed him to be. And so each year, Hannah and Elkanah, would they come, they'd come and they'd visit. They'd come, they'd visit, they'd give Samuel a, a present. And the priest, Eli, would say, may God bless you with children. And they would go home and they would have a kid. And then they would come back to Samuel and they'd give him a present. And Eli would say, hey, Lord, bless you. And they would go home and have a kid. And then they would come back and they would say, hey, Samuel, great seeing you. Eli blessed them. They'd go home and have a kid. So men, some practical thing from this. It pays to take your family to church. I do, hey, that's just what it says. Do with that what you will. 
However you interpret that, this man takes his wife to church. Kid making stuff happens. I'm saying the Lord is very good. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Okay. Verse 22. This verse drives me crazy. Now, Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. He heard about it. He knew Eli knows this stuff is happening, but he doesn't do anything about it. How they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of Yahweh spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of Yahweh to put them to death. So two things could have been happening. They could have been pressuring women who come to worship to have sex with them, or they could have raised up a harem of prostitutes at the temple for quote unquote temple service, trying to look like all the Canaanite religions. Because that's how all the Canaanite religions were, is immorality was a, a, a main focal point of how you would worship these other gods. Maybe they, thought, they looked at what other churches were doing and they said, ooh, I like that. We could do that here. That's not how God's church is supposed to be. God's church is supposed to be so other than what the rest of the world is doing. It's a, a sacred, different place that's not all about what's going on in the world, but it's all about a God who wants to redeem and save his people, who wants to elevate the status of women, who wants to see men treat their wives and their daughters with respect, who want to see young men raised up to be godly leaders in the community. The church is supposed to be completely other than everything that's happening in the world. There's an interesting text in here. Um, my heart is in the kid's wing, and so I'm trying to be quick. I've made promises that I don't think I'll be able to make good on. But here it says, the will of the Lord was to put them to death. Is that fascinating to anyone else? Because God's will is that no man should perish, right? Well, here's what happened. You can read it in Romans 1, 28 through 32. I won't read it for you, but God has put a conscience in all of us to where we know what's right and what's wrong. These men were raised in the church. They know all about God. They know what is right. They know what is pleasing. They know what is acceptable to the Lord. And they chose to instead go after evil and pursue wickedness. And just like Pharaoh in Exodus, in Exodus chapter five, he's given the opportunity to repent and to follow God and to let God's people go. He hardens his heart to it, says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to continue to do this wicked, evil thing. Eventually, God says, okay, enjoy. Go after it. Have that. I'll help you in it. And God eventually starts to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pursue that to its logical end and see that it leads with destruction. See that it leads in pain. See that it leads the opposite of what you actually want. That's what happens with these young men. They had continued to pursue evil, continued to do what is wrong, would not listen to their dad when eventually he says, hey, that's wrong, knock it off. And so God goes, okay, that's fine. I'll be done with you and I'll move on. And so verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with Yahweh and also with man. This is really fascinating text. 
Because Jesus in Luke chapter two, what we're told about him, if you go to Luke, I'll I'll go there. You don't have to. Luke chapter two, verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. They take that verse and attribute it to Jesus. Here's what happened with Jesus. This is really fascinating. Two verses before, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Just a, a quick little thought. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. That Jesus decided the eye color, the shading of the hair of Mary. That Jesus knew her, what she would look like, Psalm 139 says, before the foundations of the earth. And the, the creator and the sustainer of the world goes home as a boy with Mary and is submissive to her. Isn't that, fun? Isn't that just wow? Okay, that's, that's a life verse for your children. You make them know that because God's will for children is that they be submissive to their parents. And if Jesus can do it, your kids can do it. And so what that, that means is we as parents need to be God's people, raising them up into godliness and have an expectation for our kids of, hey, man, I love you and I want to have a great relationship with you. My role isn't to be your best buddy and to be your best friend. My role is to raise you up with boundaries, to know what is right in God's sight and to pursue that with your whole heart. And not necessarily to be the fun dad, the Disneyland dad, the, the, the happy giggles dad. It's to be the dad that makes sure you pursue righteousness. And we can have so much fun in that. But I want a, God, a kid who pursues God and grows in stature with men and with God. Kids a lot of times think that it's a choice. You're going to choose between God or choose between friends. Um, well, you know what? There are some friends who won't hang if you choose Jesus. Jesus had a friend who could not hang. Jesus had a friend who sold him out. That's true. But the friends who stay, the crew that you're around, that crew will matter. It's because of the friends that I had. They said, hey, let's go to church tonight. Let's go check this place out. And I really had no interest in it. Because of that, my whole life was changed. I got to know my king. I got to know my savior. Chapter, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says Yahweh, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar and to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? He wanted to be fun dad. He wanted to honor his sons more than honor the Lord. He wanted his kids to look at him and think, wow, I'm, wow, my dad's awesome. Instead of look at God and say, wow, my God is awesome. Verse 30, therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now Yahweh declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
Then in distress, you will look with the envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you who I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come to pass upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is a super brutal warning that Eli really does have an opportunity to respond to. But for you and I, what we need to take away from it is repentance is a gift that God has to offer people. The opportunity to turn from your ways. You don't have to continue going in the cycle that you're going in. You don't have to continue to do the things that your parents taught you to do or to lead you in. You don't have to raise your kids the way that you were raised. You have been given a new spirit a spirit of power and of love and self-control. And here, Hannah's prayer is coming true, isn't it? Those who were high and mighty and lofty and full are now going to become hungry and weak and despairing. And the last thing is just in that second to last verse. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. The word Messiah has been coined. There's a king that the priest will serve. And because of him, because of what this Messiah has done, we get freedom from the cycles that we were raised in. We get purchased out of them and redeemed. So don't let the enemy fool you with claims of him being the captain. Even when things are dark and it seems like evil is winning, Jesus is on the throne. The Messiah, the king has come. And so let's raise our kids like we believe that. So Jesus, we pray that your spirit would give us the power, the love, the self-control we need to raise our kids to be better image bearers of you than we could ever be. Help our ceiling to become their floor in regards to their walk with you, Jesus. Help us to be people who are mindful of daily stacking kindling around the heart of our children, that this community would be changed by this next generation in the way that, that we would have liked to have seen done by us. Jesus, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your ability to answer prayers. May we pray bold, courageous prayers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.